Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Art Alexakis of the band Everclear. We talked about the Pixies' 1989 album, Doolittle. We also talked about bad reviews and how this album changed the course of Art's musical life for the better. I don't think I can express this fully, but Everclear was a big band for me as a young kid getting into music. I remember I Will Buy You a New Life playing on MTV and it just speaking to me directly as a kid with a complicated home life. We covered the album on episode 98 with Danny Nogueras of No Win, so check that out. As we discussed in that episode, So Much for the Afterglow was a huge record for us and one that still honestly holds up. It was a huge honor to have art on the pod and super interesting to come full circle on a conversation with an artist influenced by an album and then hearing that artist in turn talk about a record that influenced them so significantly. So now, if we could only get someone from the Pixies, and it would just be all too perfect. Quick note, if you're new to the pod because of art, then we're happy to have you. Really sincerely, thanks for checking us out. Sort of on that note, Please check out our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we listen to records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at spinningoutpod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment, and I hear reviews definitely help. Okay, don't want to hold you any longer. Let's chat with Art. Hey, Art, how's it going? Pretty good, man. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Just, you know, had uh, my 9 to 5 work day just ended, so hopped on with you. So good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. And so today we're talking about Pixies Doolittle, an album that came out in 1989. It's their second album that came out on 4AD and Electra, and it was certified gold in 1995 and platinum in 2018. Wow. And so... Yeah. That long to get platinum? It's crazy. It's like criminal that it did. Uh, the reviews at the time were horrible on it. Yeah. It pissed me off because it's it's one of the most influential records in my life um, in a lot of ways. Musically and just the fact of when it came out, but we can get into that. But I, I just remember the review in Rolling Stone was like one and a half stars. And then they came back later and they gave it five stars, you know. That, like they they reviewed it again like in the 90s i'm just like uh fuckers yeah yeah that's interesting i think because i feel like in as long as i can remember with this album it felt like it was like well regarded but i but i know from reading things that wasn't you know how it originally was so it's interesting to kind of have like a different lens on it than i did like in a sense, even as much as I like the Pixies, it always kind of felt like a band that everybody just acted like was like, you know, completely perfect. But every time I do go listen to it, I'm like, no, this is a perfect record. So, you know, I can't hate on it. Not at the time. At the time, yeah. that wasn't the case. I mean, there was a lot of people who were dead. I, 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 I've got a, the Pixies for me were just, and for a lot of people who were, it wasn't called alternative music at the time. It was called like indie music or college music or, you know, um, you know, and 
it was, uh, it just hit me at a time when it was the right place at the right time. And I think it did a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, as far as like critics, like I said, Marlon Stone and Spin, they, people, I remember one person and I believe it was in Rolling Stone. You'd have to go back and try to find that review, but someone just called it like this new music is called pig fuck music. And I'm like, Oh yeah. What are you talking about? What the fuck? Calls yeah. it? And it's just like, I, I remember that. And I've talked to other people who remembered seeing that review and I believe it was Rolling Stone and it was like one and a half stars or something stupid, but you know, people, and like I said, they, in the nineties, they did a like classic record review and they gave it like five stars or four stars or whatever. And, you know, it's just, you know, it, what, what do you call that? Uh, just uh, uh, what kind of memory is like when you just kind of cherry pick the good things and don't talk about the bad things. You yeah, know? yeah. I think, I yeah. think everyone could be guilty of that to a certain extent. To be fair. When I was looking at like uh, Pitchfork reviews, they were kind of the same, even though it was like they started out positive, but it seemed like it just kind of went more and more positive. So time has been kind to how they view Doolittle, but uh, it's interesting kind of put it. I've heard the term pig fuck, but I had never heard it used for them. I feel like a lot of times when I heard it used would be I don't know, like even like butthole surfers or something would be something that I would hear more, not pixies. So it's interesting. Butthole surfers, a lot of the amphetamine reptile bands at the time, mm -hmm. you know, God bullies, uh, uh, Jesus lizards, stuff like that. Um, but they were wrapping the pixies up in that, you wow. know, it, it, it's just those people not doing their homework and just mm -hmm. lazy, just lazy journalism. You know, they weren't. I don't, they weren't really even listening to it. And, you know, just as an aside, I remember someone doing a review of a big, a big journalist doing a review of Sparkle and Fade, our first big record. And he gave me a horrible review. And I'm, and just what he was saying about it seemed like all he did wanted to do was make Nirvana comparisons and he wouldn't, wasn't very specific. And I mean, later I remember talking to him on Afterglow and he's like yeah man I didn't even listen to your record <laughs> flat out told me didn't even listen to the record I'm like yeah he goes everyone said you sound like Nirvana and, and I just didn't need to listen to it I'm like well you've listened to it now what do you think now I mean even D even Dave Grohl when he was asked about Everclear he's like I don't think Everclear sounds like Nirvana he goes I think I think Bush sounds like Nirvana, but I don't think Everclear does. Anyway, um, yeah, but but same thing, you know, with the Pixies. I just think people just they they didn't they didn't have a lot of hype behind them. That hype came later. It yeah. came really from Surfer Rosa and from this album. That's where the hype came from, because this record was just so just kind of blew people away. But. uh yeah, that makes sense that they only went gold on this record uh, I, because at the time, I mean, they did well. I remember seeing them uh, open for the Throwing Muses. Do you remember that band, the Throwing Muses? Mm -hmm. But uh, Tanya Donnelly. Yeah, Tanya Donnelly. Okay. And uh, what's what's the singer's name? I forget something. Hirsch, Kristen Hirsch, something like that. Um, yeah, Tanya Donnelly was still in the band. 
and they uh, they opened for them in a small club, and I saw that show because I had become a big fan of Surfer Rosa. And uh, then the next time I saw the Pixies was after uh, Doolittle. I saw them headline the, the Fillmore, you know. Yeah. And then the next time I saw them, they headlined. Uh, I was living in San Francisco at the time. And next time I saw them, they headlined an even bigger venue. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking about like, okay, so this came out in 1989. Right. Like, where do you feel like you were at musically when you heard this album? Had you been privy to them before this album? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the year yeah. before, I was, I remember we were at the Tower Records in, uh, in North Beach. And it was me and a friend of mine and his friend, Adam, who was kind of a pretentious guy. And we're all like looking at tapes and stuff. And he goes, oh, I've read about this band. They're on 4AD. And I really like Dead Can Dance. And I like all the this, this goth stuff. And so we bought the Pixies cassette for, I think, five bucks, five yeah. or six. And we, we you know, got got in my car and started listening to it and he's like oh man i hate this <laughs> i go i fucking love this man this is like punk and it's weird and it's droney it's got uh harmonies like old losing brothers like appalachian almost almost like the band x you know mm-hmm. punk x that i grew up with that just those really dissonant kind of harmonies but with melody and uh, uh the guitars had a real kind of almost Sonic Youth kind of feel to it. I'm like, I love this album. He's like, well, I'm going to take it back. Go, I'll buy it from you. Buy it from me right now. Five bucks. You pay five bucks for it. I'll give you five bucks for it. And I remember going home and telling my wife at the time, I need about it. And we got in the car and started driving around, listening to it. And we drove around for like three hours. We drove out to over the Golden State Bridge, that's middle of the night, right? And just mm-hmm. and we listened to that record for like three hours. And uh, yeah, so that's when I saw, then they came on tour with uh, Throwing Muses and they played uh, this place called the I-Beam, which is a, mm-hmm. I don't know, about three, 400, maybe 500 tops. And they were, I thought they were great. They weren't really exciting to watch. They've never been a really exciting band to watch. You just kind of stand there and play. But the music's so powerful that it was pretty exciting. But uh, yeah, they did. They had lost their gear had gotten stolen the night before in Berkeley at a show in Berkeley. They got their gear had gotten stolen that night, so they were playing all of uh, throwing Muses' gear for that mm. show. <laughs> wow that's uh i feel like i'm like can i even recall things that happened like five years ago and i feel like you're like recalling all this stuff um uh, you yeah. know so well i'm like dang but what i had for dinner last night cause... <laughs> yeah, i guess that's how it works um i mean i do i do a thing i feel like sometimes there's someone in the office will start saying like a movie then i'm like oh well, that actor this director came out this year and they're like how'd you do that you know, so sometimes it's like your brain allows you to kind of have that one thing. But yeah, remembering like dinner or something, it yeah. won't let you do. There's weird g- gates and, and doors and stuff up there. 
It's a mystery, especially especially as you get older, man. <laughs> yeah, just kind of like the right word kind of unlocks it. You know, definitely yeah. like with the with the gate. Um, so I'm just, I guess, I always try and like think about even when kind of like '90s rock came in. Sometimes I'm like, it's easy to trace it from, well, somewhat easy, because I feel like Nirvana will be like, oh, Pixies were an influence. But sometimes I feel like bands like, you know, Everclear don't, people don't often go like, oh, Pixies, I think is like the influence there. And I'm not sure why like certain bands in the 90s were kind of allowed that lineage while others weren't. And I don't know if you have a way of answering that question. Uh, I think... A lot of bands that came post Nirvana just were not uh, really just as considered, you know. They just everyone considered thought that any band that came after Nirvana was influenced by Nirvana, which and is yeah. That's kind of where it was, you know. We were a three-piece from Portland, Oregon, you know, with a lead singer, blonde hair that screamed a lot, and you know, people were just like, "Oh, that sounds like Nirvana." Not really, but I mean, in the sense that it was heavy and loud and noisy and melodic at the same time. Yeah, I guess we were influenced by Nirvana. I mean, it's funny. Well, a friend of mine who was in a big band, a post, like a, uh, a post, uh, what would you call it? Industrial band. Um, but he was a guy, he was one of those guys. He was, he was with me. He was my friend that I was with that night that I got that that cassette he moved to san francisco and then i moved up to san francisco from la because they were getting gigs in la i mean in san francisco and you couldn't unless you were a metal band you couldn't get gigs in la it was all pay to play in the 80s so that's one the main reason i moved to san francisco in 87 88 but um i uh i i remember he told me like when he was in uh, he had heard my bands, all my bands and stuff. And my, you know, when he was first time he heard Nirvana, he's like, wow, this kind of sounds like the, the stuff art's doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that was his inclination and uh, his wife's inclination. They hadn't even met yet. They just both, they, but she knew my, my band from San Francisco. So not saying that I influenced Nirvana, not even remotely um but i mean i was we were there's a lot of bands already moving in that direction yeah yeah they they were just amazing you know they were there and first and they were there better than anybody else and uh but there i mean there was a lot of cohesiveness in the scene because there was a lot of the same influences you know that, that we grew up with you know kiss Aerosmith and Zeppelin and, and then punk rock and then New Wave and then Pixies and Jane's Addiction. It was all there that a different, you know, Husker Du, I was a big Husker Du fan. He was a huge, uh, Kurt was a big Husker Du fan. Um, you know, there was just a lot of, a, a lot of people from the 90s grew up in the 70s listening to a lot of the same music and in the 80s listening to the same music. So, um, yeah. I, I think a lot of times, you know, people who write about music need to find a hook to talk yeah. that that delineates or or diminishes one one artist over another. 
Yeah. Because it, it just makes for an interesting story, more interesting story. Yeah, that, I feel like one my... time... Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, one time when I had a review... Like, my band had a review, and the writer wrote, like, that we were influenced by Nirvana. And I remember I messaged him, and this is kind of silly in hindsight, and I was like, well, what does that mean? You know? And eventually, I guess it's like it got to him, and he ended up changing the review because he was like, "Yeah, I don't know what I was really meaning by that." Because I feel like it kind of became like a placeholder that people would use and not really like articulate what they were trying to get at. Yeah, so I get the kind of post kind of thing. That's basically yeah. what that it was just the easy reach for them. They didn't have to, you know, by saying someone was influenced by Nirvana, that was the end-all be-all of describing any band of white boys playing alternative rock, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Was, it's lazy. It's just easy and lazy. It's the low-hanging fruit. So. Yeah. But, and that, that San Franciscan friend that you were mentioning, um, I was actually just reading an article. And so he went to work on your, uh, sorry, uh, so much for the afterglow. Is that the same friend? Lars, Lars Fox. Yes, that's his name. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Called Grotus. That was kind of an. That's the band. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of that name and recall, but you know, like we were saying earlier, the kind of uh, doors weren't unlocking. But, but yeah, that's interesting. I, I feel like from this kind of piece that's just, you know, from 2017, Willamette Week, and uh, but it mentions like Grotus, and it's talking. It's pronounced Willamette. Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not from that area. But um, but I, I know that even they feel like, you know, we were talking about kind of journalists and stuff, like the way that they seem to have a relationship with, with you know, your own band uh, through that article. It's it's always they, interesting. They yeah. hate us, man. They were, yeah. They just literally just never wrote anything nice about us or me. They they were friends, but that was that had nothing to do with the music. That was a personal thing. They just they didn't know me. They knew people in the band that in the, in the scene that you know didn't didn't like us because we were successful and they weren't. Yeah, they thought we were sellouts. And I'm like, if you're making music and you're selling it, uh, you're a sellout. You know, it doesn't matter where you're at. Uh, to me, a sellout is someone who changes their music or changes what they do to um, to have success, you know. Yeah. And one, it rarely ever works. You know, it, it just doesn't work. And two, I just I I just don't give a fuck enough to do anything like that. I just didn't play games. I didn't go out and hang out. Uh, everybody else in the scene was drinking i was sober at the time um and it was and we weren't cool to them we were cool to people outside of portland but not to portland so they're just yeah. you know all those all those people are you know working real jobs now they're not doing music and i am so yeah 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 because okay so getting back into the pixies uh for doolittle an interesting thing too like as that kind of thing idea of like selling out too it's like no matter where he is in his career i feel like he can't help but like be himself you know and, and it's like i don't want to say it's like to the detriment of him but it's like 
even at like one of his biggest songs like Los Angeles, it feels like he's like still undeniably him, you know? So more just like a comment kind of on the idea of like, you know, it's like selling out. He just can't help but be himself. But I would assume people at that point were like, oh, he's not the same, you know, Black Francis he was when we we knew him, you know? Yeah, you know, well, you know, his name's Charles. And Charles yeah, yeah. Has, has always had his own thing. And uh, he's, you know, like people who are really, really creative. They're really weird people and uh, in a good way. And... I I don't think one one of the things that shows me can show you that he's not selling out is that his music is very similar from solo album solo album from Teenager of the Year to you know the first album Los Angeles and then uh, Frank Black and Teenagers or you know what whatever he did it, it sounded like the Pixies <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. You said it quicker than I could. Yeah, yeah. And either Joey Joey was playing on it or not. Um, it sounded like the Pixies. Um, but the thing about the Pixies is, yeah, that it was definitely his Charles Black, you know, Frank Black, Black Francis, whatever you want to call him. Yeah. It was his thing, but it, they were some of their parts. I mean, they 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 sounded like they did because of Joy Santiago, because of Kim Deal, because of David Lovering. Yeah, you know, they are a band. They yeah. were a band, and you take a part away, and it's not really the same thing. And you know, it's great that they're out touring now. And you know, I know Joey, and I we're, we're Facebook friends. And I see pictures of these huge crowds all over the world. And when that, that album came out and even Trump Lamont, no one no one went to, no one came out to see him like that. No one thought they were the coolest things in sliced bread. You know, I think a lot of it happened and this is my own personal opinion, mm-hmm. was because Kurt Cobain had the huge success he did and they asked him what his influences were and he's one of the first bands he ever said was the Pixies. And I think that, that help people go back and listen to the Pixies and go, oh yeah, I hear it in this and I hear it in that and I hear it in all these bands. And, you know, I think it takes people a while to figure things out. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Cause I guess like if you think about where you mentioned Throwing Muses, I guess if Kurt Cobain had said, oh, Throwing Muses is a big influence and maybe we'd live in an alternate universe with that word, you know, it's hard to say. Maybe, maybe I think it would have definitely helped them from that. And throw muses were cool. And, you know, Tanya went on to do Belly, the band Belly, and that was really cool when it came out. Um, uh, and Tanya was the original guitar player on the first album, Pod, which was produced by Steve Albini. And her guitar playing on that is fucking phenomenal. Just phenomenal. yeah. Yeah, because they they all are uh, credited as like aliases on that. Yeah, yeah, but no, it's Tanya playing guitar on that, and just yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I I guess like all Fam- of this time. Oh sorry. Go ahead. Oh sorry. Um, all of this time after, why do you feel like? How do you feel like you keep coming back to Doolittle? Like, 
you know, because I think like on the usually I get people. So anyone listening, I get people to pick like three albums and then you kind of narrow it down to one. So kind of I picked Doolittle for that. And White Album was another one. Doolittle is, is one and then Public Enemy. Like, why do you feel like you keep going back to Doolittle? Like uh, out of like, I guess, every record you've you've heard ever. Well, because it's just it, it still holds up. All mm-hmm. those record I meant, records I mentioned, and there's many, many more. It could be XL on Main Street. It could be X's first album or X Wild Get. Those albums still hold up to me. You know, Husker Du, uh, New Day Rising, big, big album for me. Um, Replacements, Let It Be, big album. Um, they still hold up. You know, they still sound relevant to me. To me. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm not saying for anyone else. I'm just saying for me that they're still relevant and exciting. And I think Pixies Doolittle is one of those records that just, you know, it, it's, it, I can't, I, I got it. Sooner or later, I hope you ask me how I came upon it because that's a really good story. Um, so how did you come upon listening to this record? Okay, well, like I said, I was living in San Francisco living in North Beach, working downtown. I used to walk back and forth and listen to my little Walkman. I had my little round glasses and my little ponytail. You know, this is 1988, 89. And year before, I had gotten really into Surfer Rosa. And uh, I remember, like, going on my lunch hour. I was working an office job. And on my lunch hour... I walked down to this place called the Galleria to get something to eat. I walked by this record store and I saw a little poster about this big, like 1117, not very big at all, up in the window that said Pixies, Doolittle, and it's a picture of the monkey. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And I go inside and I go, what is, hey dude, what's Pixies Doolittle? And he goes, that's their new album, man. It just came out today. I go, you got it on cassette? He goes, yep. Because I was just, I was just pricing them. I go, I'll buy it right now. I bought it, walked out the door, didn't get lunch, just ripped the plastic off it, threw it in the Walkman, started walking back to, to uh, my office, which was about 10 minutes away, and just had it cranked up walking in the sunshine and it would just transported me. And I got to around the corner from my work and there was a payphone. This is way before cell phones, right? Yeah. But cell phones were like drug dealers, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I called, called in and said, I'm not feeling too good. I'm feeling sick and I need to go home. Okay. All right. Well, feel better tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. Okay. So I hung up, lied, went around the corner, got on a bus, and it didn't matter what bus it was. And I got on the bus, and it took me all over San Francisco five times. I stayed on the bus. Finally, the driver goes, I'm going in. You got to get off. And I was just sitting back there listening to every song over and over and over again. And about Three months earlier, I was married to my first wife, Anita, real nice, nice gal, but she just 
was getting disillusioned with not having a lot of money because uh, I wasn't really putting, you know, I was playing in bands and stuff. So I had promised her I wouldn't play in bands anymore. She, she wanted me to promise that. And I went home that night and just told her, look, um, I'm going to start doing my music again because I'm just really inspired. And if you want to be a part of it, my life, great. If not, we're going to have to figure something out because I got to do music. So I had gotten away from playing in bands and even, and I was depressed, super depressed about it. And that record inspired me. Good music and good bands and crappy bands inspire me. A good band, seeing a good band live is like, fuck, man, that's awesome. Even if I don't want to do that type of music, I'm just yeah. way when I hear people that got it, that that found something, found their groove, right? And uh, their niche. And uh, same thing with shitty bands, like, man, we're better than that band. Fuck those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not like that now, but you know, in my 20s, I was. And um, I just kind of laid down the law that night. The next night, I put an ad in the paper and started doing music again. And um, that album, just the, the, the songs, the way they ran together, the production of it, Gil Norton's production of it, the, um, everything just sounded new and different and produced enough that you could hear everything and it wasn't pretentious. It wasn't like, you know, Steve Albini's stuff is like, you know, kind of bludgeon, bludgeony at times, which I enjoy. But this had so much more uh, depth to it that the more I listened to the songs, the more I got out of it. And much less one dimensional than maybe uh, Surfer Rosa was. And I love Surfer Rosa. That's very visceral record. That sounds almost live, you know? Yeah. And I had heard that when they produced, when uh, Albini, Steve Albini produced um, Surfer Rosa, that they had taken a week or two to do guitars and drums and the music. But when they did vocals, they did it in one day, one or two days. And that was it. No, no comps, no, no tune. Well, they auto tune didn't exist at the time, but yeah. just like he wanted it animal and visceral. And I get that. And I'm glad that they didn't do that for their second record, that they did something different. But at the same time, then a couple of years later, they put out a record called Bossa Nova, produced by Gold Norton, which was overproduced and not interesting. And I've gone back three or four times and listened to that record. Hate it. Still hate it. <laughs> yeah. And then they put out a record called Trompe Le Bond, which I love. Phenomenal. Yeah. Record. But, yeah, that was actually the first Pixies record I ever heard. I got it at like a pawn shop. And Trump. yeah, and uh, I, it was, yeah, I mean, in the same way, I feel like it changed my life. I didn't go down that path, but I was like, if I could ever get anywhere close to this, you know. In your so. own right, it's not sounding like that, but, but how unique and how much, like to me, when you put on the Pixies or put on something with, with uh, Charles singing, I know exactly who that is. I know, you know, I can I can name that tune in like three notes. It's it's that unique and and just 
full of its own juice, not in a bad yeah. way, good way. Yeah, I like that kind of, I mean, Pixies weren't a part of this, but when I think about even like SST records, like I feel like a lot of that kind of sound, it was a lot of bands kind of looking at each other and being like, I see what you're doing. I'm going to do something completely different, but I'm doing it because you did this. Exactly. You know, like when you, yeah. Exactly. Wow. You're doing that and that's really good. And that was the whole punk rock thing. It wasn't trying to sound like the Sex Pistols. X doesn't sound like New York punk. New York punk doesn't really sound like London punk, but they have that same attitude of getting rid of guitar solos and long hair and all that hippie bullshit and just getting down to the meat of it, right? And, yeah, yeah. And I still have that ethos. I still have that punk rock, you know, kind of manifest uh, destiny belief of just, you know, uh, do, do it simple less is more um hard but i still like melody i've never got into the screamo type bands it's not my thing yeah sounds the same yeah when you when you like look at when you look at frank black's lyrics uh charles's lyrics did you ever feel like you wanted to draw any influences or is it back to what we were saying like it's like i see what you're doing lyrically I'm going to do my own thing or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, can't, I ever aped his lyrics or his vocal style. You know, if anything, if anything from the Pixies, um, I, if, if I ever used anything from the Pixies, it was probably like the harmonies, um, the way song structure, like they would drop stuff out um, and they wouldn't, repeat stupid stuff over again like they didn't have it wasn't first course first course first course you know it wasn't a typical songwriting thing they to me that made it okay not to do that just to figure it out maybe you want to start with a chorus or a verse or or just a bridge and then just go into a first chorus 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 you know i mean to me it, it there's no rules and, and bands like the Pixies and Sonic Youth was really big for me. And even hip hop eschewed, um, try, you know, get away from song structure and create more linear type arrangements. And I, I, I'm more influenced by that. But if I'm influenced by anything uh, other than song structure by the Pixies, I'd say it's um, Joey Santiago's guitar playing. I mean, I know jo Joey, you know, I know him from, from just, you know, mutual friends and stuff. And I don't know that I've ever told him how influential a guitar player he is to me. <laughs> I don't think he yeah. knows. Um, he's one of my top five guitar players of all time. And uh, I think he's amazing. Yeah, he truly is. Like, it's... Sometimes when I listen to them, I feel like when I listen to when I listen to this, even for this, I was like, I can write a song like that. But then when I start paying more attention, I'm like, oh, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> like sometimes those little tricks that Joey does. And I was reading some about it. Like it was like uh, one specific song had like Jimi Hendrix chords. And it really feels like when you go to art school and you learn all the things that you're supposed to do properly. But then so, you know, all the, the tricks and, you know, everything you're supposed to do. But then. Because you learn the foundations, you just throw them all away. And then you know? get very Dada about it, right? And yeah. 
just throw the rules away. And that's yeah. what that that's what Pixies and bands like that helped me do. It, I that I was probably more influ- influenced by that. But just the droniness, but the melodic the melody of his guitar playing at the same time and he had a very sixties kind of feel to it, which I love that whole mid century modern um sound and and uh you know the, the reverb and the um just just the whole the whole thing the way he dealt with stuff was just noisy and he'd slide stuff around and use noise made by his guitar as, as part of the the melody you know mm-hmm. and um uh there wasn't a lot of people doing that at the time yeah. ever i i closest would be like Thurston and and uh, um, you know from Sonic Youth those guys they were doing amazing stuff. so I was looking at so even the first track Debaser it's a reference it has a reference to the 1929 Salvador Dali film Groundwork so those kind of things I feel like I never I don't know I feel like I never have those kind of references it's like an interpersonal thing <laughs> For me when i'm putting a song together so do you ever feel like you're like pulling from like some sort of abstract art piece or you know yeah. actually it wasn't a salvador dolly film i'm trying to see who, who did that i i can't look it up on my phone because i'm on my phone let me see if i can do it on here but who did the film and delusion dog but i saw that in film school i had been in film oh, school, okay right and that's the one where they're cutting up eyeballs and you know, the girls walking, talking backwards and the dogs just like doing all this stuff. It was all black and white. It was, it was from Paris in the early 20s, like 21, 22. That whole period of like, you know, when just all that Dada stuff was going on. And it, you know, a lot of, it was really exciting. Did you ever see the Woody Allen movie Midnight in Paris? Yeah. Okay. The, I mean... I don't want to get into thing about Woody Allen, but I mean, that, <laughs> but that movie where, you know, Owen, Owen Wilson goes back in time to the twenties. Cause that's the time that he was really influenced by, right. Hammy, yeah. Cole Porter, that whole thing, that, that early roaring twenties before the depression kind of thing. And uh, that that's where that film came from. And so when he's talking about slicing the eyeballs, you know, I, I was like, is he talking about that fucking movie that I had to watch in film school? Oh, wow. <laughs> that stupid fucking movie. And, you know, it was like, you know, I, I, so his lyrics were just like stream of consciousness, but they made, they made, they were almost, it was like he was in on a joke no one else was in on, you know, mm-hmm. and he was very minimal about it. He wasn't going on and like me, like writing, you know, like all this verse and, and, and stuff like that. He was getting to the meat of what he wanted to say and having it work more important, most importantly, work with the music so that it seemed seamless. Like you couldn't say, okay, well, I like the lyrics of this, but not the music, or I like the music or not the lyrics. They were one, they, they were they were like 
meat on the bone. You know, you couldn't take, you couldn't have one with the, without the other. And that's very strong in, in rock music to have that, that both sides uh, of the lyrical aspect of it and the musical aspect of it and the vocal aspect of it, and even the artistic representation of the artwork of the record that they were so enmeshed and just um, important and, and to, to the whole that mm -hmm. like separate them from the sum of their parts. And that's what I, that's one of the things I think Pixies bring, especially on this record. It's so, um, it's, it's a 10 man, as far as I'm concerned, still is, still holds up. Yeah, I I always I always feel like every time I want to listen to Pixies, I always feel like I want to like challenge it some. But then when I get done listening to it, I'm like, nope, you win again. Like it's always a battle. Personally, it's always feels like a battle because like I I don't know. I think like you know, at my at my age, like I feel like in my head, and this is this is my own stuff I'm working through. And this is why I have this podcast. Really. I think it's what's great about doing this podcast is I feel like I get to kind of like prove myself wrong a lot of times. You know? And that's, that's nice. But you know, like I feel like in my head pixies like t-shirts and like, there's like a guy, you know, probably like five to 10 years older than me that like, you know, he's like going to Starbucks or something. It almost feels like commercial in a way. But then when I really dig in and I think back even to my own relationship back to it i'm like no that's not really that's really not what it was and i like that you right out of the gate kind of said like where it actually was when this record came out because that i mean i'm saying i love being proven wrong you know and i knew i wasn't right there but it, it's like something in my head i think because of that kind of post nirvana thing that yeah, kind of changed it. i i get it you know i get i get what you're saying i it's almost just the same thing when you see little kids wearing like uh, Misfits t-shirts and shit. Oh, like for that. sure. It's 100%. You've never fucking heard the Misfits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, or, 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 or little suburban kids wearing Nirvana shirts. I'm like, name more than one song. Just one. Name yeah. one. Oh, um, uh, that song. What's it called? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, I, I, I would get like that too when, when things would be come overblown and everybody was wearing Ramon's t-shirts but think about it and I and I thought about this and I with a friend of mine I mean how cool is it that that has that that music which was so unproduced unimportant at the time it was important but it wasn't it wasn't like lauded it wasn't like it didn't win Grammys it didn't get nominated for dick you know mm -hmm. Of that music and all those bands are now at least recognized as so important that they are recognized not even by their music just by an image of their record or yeah. or their name their logo you know that to me is worth all the bullshit because yeah. that, that it's got into society and it's got its little roots and tendrils and talents deep 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 into the mainstream and yeah and not just mainstream music but mainstream society really yeah yeah it's like the you know the joy division shirt thing but it's like 
But Joy Div- every every time I have that battle with myself and I get done and I'm listening to Joy Division, I'm like, no, great band. <laughs> like, so sometimes I have to kind of prove myself wrong and kind of get back in there and be like, and, you know, I, if I hear a Ramon song, it comes on, I am like 12 years old again, you know, in my mind. And it's like, I can't help it. Even Misfits, it's like Misfits song comes out, comes on. I am just singing every word, you know? But I, but I see, and then I'll see a little kid, and I'll be like, "You little motherfucker!" You know? <laughs> you but, just, hey, fucker! Give me that! <laughs> give me those tiny vans! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, 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 I. I, I know those instincts and, you know, being an older guy that kind of grew up with a lot of these things, unlike you did, I'm, I think I'm more tolerant of it, but there was a time when I wasn't and I, I get it, you know, that's a young man's thing to be intolerant. Um, older people are just like, it's not even that we don't care anymore. It's just like, I don't really care what other people think. I really don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I used to think I didn't. I used to act like I didn't, but now I really don't. And yeah. It, like people are, want to do an interview that will help the tour. I'm like, would you like me to do it in an interview? <laughs> sure. I've done, and I, I'm not trying to be arrogant here or no, uh, no. the old man on the mountain, but I've done thousands of interviews. If I never do another interview again, I'll be okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't mean I'm going to stop making music. And and it's and I know it, it's important. Like when we put our new single out, "The Year of the Tiger," that's going to come out in about a month. Um, yeah, I hope people want to write about it because I hope people will hear the new song and want to hear us play it live. And more people will come out and play, and we can perpetuate what we do. And and we'll have a new song to put into the repertoire. You know, because. I'm done making albums as far as where I'm at now. I could turn around tomorrow and say differently, but I don't think I will. I just want to make out, make a new song every six months. That's yeah. Do a video of it for like five grand, really cheap, like some film student, you know, just do something. But the video, the video that I'm working on, I'm probably going to co-direct it with a friend of mine uh, who was, kind of a unknown entity i can't say who it is but uh we're gonna we're gonna make this for like five grand and it's gonna be so stupid and funny and the song is not stupid or funny but the video is gonna be so yeah. yeah those are those are often the best couplings i feel like that's like the best times even when you were talking about like uh you know some of the kind of in jokes you feel like you know charles has with his lyrics but it's like it's an in-joke, but it comes across like, you know, very serious in ways, you know, too. So I like that kind of coupling of kind of where you can tell someone's a goofball, but everything comes out in the music as, you know, right. sincere, you know, like this is actually that person. But kind of, I guess, going back to like talking about being a hater for a second, where it comes for me <laughs> is now I feel like... You, when, you called it. You said a hater. You said yeah. I, I'm I'm totally a hater and I'm trying not to be, but one <laughs> one thing that I find myself saying a lot is I'll someone will ask me about like whatever song. I don't even want to name an artist. It'll be like something top forty now. Right. 
And then they'll ask me about it. And we're like, you know, it's fine. I've heard worse things. But and then I'm like, I feel myself saying that a lot. And then I I struggle to figure out, like, what do we even hate anymore? <laughs> you know, there was like, I don't even, I can't even remember what I disliked. You know, it's like I have certain things where I thought I did. And then I listen to it. And I'm like, I don't know what I disliked about it, you know, <laughs> like, but yeah, so I feel that kind of getting older. I'm just like, I don't even know what I hate anymore. <laughs> it is. It's just like, man, now I hear stuff and I'm just like, not my thing. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not my thing. Um, maybe I need to hear it again, but pretty sure it's not my thing. And uh, that's okay. You know, it's, uh, to me, if it, if music or anything gives someone somewhere pleasure then it's valid flat out yeah it's valid if it's important enough for them to buy it or download it or whatever you want to call it it's it has validity whether you like it or not you know whether i like it or not it it has validity and i think that that's important for people especially writers to remember um man i remember i when i went for my degree when I went to college in 85 for the first time I uh my major was journalism because I wanted to write I wanted to write about music and and you know I like writing I was pretty good at writing but I remember doing some reviews for some local zines and and fan and and newspapers and in Santa West LA and they're like, no, nah, it's just you're kind of in the middle. You you don't hate it or love it. You gotta you gotta give me one of one or the other. And I go, well, it's an honest review of the record. There's things I like about it, and things I don't like about it. And they're like, well, that doesn't sell. You've got to be preferably hate it. And you, you know, art. I've heard you talk. You're sarcastic and snippy and funny and witty. You need to be that. In your writing, and I go. So basically, be a dick. <laughs> I gotta yeah. be. Nah, you know, I don't want to do that. So yeah, and I feel like that definitely took over journalism for a long time. And I feel like it's like when I reread reviews for these, I'm just like, they're like, like you were saying earlier. It just feels like it's like you're not listening. Like you're just kind of taking it for what it was kind of in the consciousness at the time. Like there's no way to do this, but a friend of mine told me they were like, it would be interesting if people could just like get a blank CD. I guess we don't use CDs anymore in the same way, but like you don't know what it is, but you're a writer and you just have to write about it. It'd be hard because you'd probably figure it out. But like, if you could truly just listen to something and write about how it made you feel without knowing the context. Yeah. Pure objectivity. Yeah. Like without any kind of preconceived, beliefs or or attachments or anything yeah i mean that would be great and that's what you're supposed to do that's what we're supposed to do when we listen to things whether we're writing about them for other people or not it's you're supposed to be objective but we're human beings we're not objective yeah it it, i see i'm even more i'm even more compassionate and patient to the haters (laughs) (laughs) Who thought, who saw that one coming? Not me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes when I, even when I write like on a app, there's this app called Letterboxd and you can do reviews of movies in there. Like I'll review a movie and then I'll read somebody else's review. And these are just like regular, regular people writing reviews. 
then I'm like, well, they made a good point. And like, I feel like I almost have to like change my thing. And I'm like, well, I don't have to, no one's reading this, but yeah, it's hard to kind of like take away that kind of social pressure, even though in this situation, there's no pressure on this app making it. So I understand from a writer's standpoint, if they're like, you know, they're like, oh, I have to trash this, but it's like, it'd be nice (laughs) if we could be objective in that way. You know, I think that's, that's what's called for. Do, Do you have a last, last question it's okay actually it's more it's more so of like there's something i found because i work as a concert poster archivist i wish i had a simpler way to say what that job is but uh basically there was a sweaty nipple show that happened in 1997 and i think for a while we couldn't figure out what year the show happened on and then there's a band on it called like hesher kings and i realized that that was everclear playing sweaty nipples's last show and everything just clicked into place. And so that was, I thought it was interesting because I'd seen the poster, didn't know. You guys were in my band and crew. Davey Leprinzi, the, the, one of the founders, uh, Brian LaFell. Brian was our drum tech, became our percussionist. Davey was our bass tech, became uh, our lead guitar player. Uh, just turn, you know, not, not, they didn't make any albums with us. It was always the three of us. Uh, you know, me playing all the guitars and all the melodic instruments, but they were in our touring band. And uh, yeah, the Hesh, so the Heshers were a name for like, you know, like old school dudes that, that, that still look like they walked out in 1975, right? Long hair, yeah. dash, all nine yards. And I dressed up as a, as a Hesher King for Christmas or, or for Halloween. And went to a show and one of the guys in sweaty nipples they didn't recognize me they're in my band they worked for me something and they didn't recognize me because i had this big ass bushy you know mustache and long hair and just hesher like corduroy and blue jeans and and uh yeah uh, but uh yeah we were the hesher kings that was yeah our- yeah, yeah, it's just interesting kind of also seeing those names in different contexts, like Steve Birch, like kind of seeing him as a artist for the most part is how I encounter him on a day-to-day basis. And then, you know, not that he played with you, but Mike King and his name's like on so many Portland, you know, most Portland posters, you know, of the time, you know, so just kind of seeing a different circle of the context since Steve Birch like toured and played guitar with y'all. Well, the first he he was a designer. yeah. He worked for Monkey Productions, who owns who owned uh, who owns the the Wonder Ballroom now. Um, but at the time, Steve was their main production guy. That's how I met him. But he was also starting to do artwork and uh, layout and stuff. And we had a lot of the same styles that we liked the whole like old school '60s kind of look to it. And so he and me. <clears throat> excuse me um design the the uh, the uh album covers for shit when he did he did world of noise sparkle and fade mm-hmm. and, um afterglow yeah 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 i mean great work and i don't think he did he didn't do song from american movie i don't think he did that no but i don't i don't believe so yeah and yeah angles and different stuff here and there I see. I saw. I saw him not too long ago when I was in Portland. 
we just we just ran into each other. Yeah. He's, yeah. He used to call him Steve Cheese. I still don't know why, but that was his Portland rock name was Steve Cheese. And he was the guitar player for a band called Sprinkler, which yeah. a lot of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I super appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. You know, I I think it's it's so interesting to me to kind of like see things more in context because I'm always trying to get to the nitty gritty of that kind of time frame, just that kind of before everything became like codified, you know, the pre-Nirvana thing, but then also like those kind of waves from like 86 to, you know, 88 because then it's like Del Fuego's or Dump Truck or, you know, any of these kind of things that just like pop up in your head and are like, what was the context of it at the time outside of even something as big as the Pixies? So I super appreciate you kind of filling in those blanks for me. Sure, man. Good talking. Welcome back. Thanks again, Art, for being on this humble little podcast. It was a huge honor to chat with him. It's honestly pretty insane, and I still can't believe it. Okay, next week, we're talking with Steve Shell of the podcast Old Gods of Appalachia. More on that next week. Once again, don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spendingoutpod. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment, and reviews definitely help. Thanks, as always, to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week.